Welcome to our first Transatlantic Takeaway episode this year. Our show is a joint production by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Transatlantic Takeaway explores the impact of key political developments on the European Union and the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. Joining us for a look at the big transatlantic headlines we can expect for 2023 are German Marshall Fund Senior Fellow and Senior Program Officer, Daniel Hagadush. He's here in the studio with us. Hi, Daniel. Hi, thank you for having me. And the Director of GMS Paris Office joining us via Zoom, Martin Cancé. Hi, Martin. Hey, hi. Happy to be here. Great to have you both here. Last year was an unusually turbulent year. Russia went to war in Ukraine, which spurred the worst energy crisis in half a century, not to mention global economic upheaval. We also experienced a rocky emergence from the pandemic, as well as a growing climate crisis. But there were some good moments in 2022 as well. For example, American and European relations improved, and there was rare unity within the EU, at least on some key issues, despite attempts by Hungary's Viktor Orban to thwart that unity. So will 2023 bring more of the same? Let's start with Martin and the EU. Will the challenges posed by Russia and the war in Ukraine, are they going to further strengthen the EU and EU solidarity and unity? Or do we think the European front is going to weaken? I don't think that the war has in any way strengthened the EU or or EU solidarity. I think that what we've seen is um, a better outcome than what some have expected, um, both in terms of the US-Europe relation and the relationship among Europeans. But overall, the war is terrible news for Europe. Uh, This will put Europe in a political and economic situation of crisis for months and years, and 2023 will not change that fact. Um, I think the other issue is that what we've seen since the beginning of the war is a lack of leadership inside Europe because Berlin and Paris have lost credibility and nobody's there to replace them. And despite this narrative that um, there's sort of a, a shift to the east inside Europe, I don't think that we should expect Central or Nordic Europe uh, become a pole uh, and sort of replace the role that Berlin and Paris used to play. So um, short answer is that I expect 2023 to be a continuation of 2022 in, in that it will weaken Europe further. And you mentioned already Berlin and Paris and the sort of missing momentum of the uh, old motor of the EU. So what do you expect for 2023? Do you think there's going to be some changes in the Berlin-Paris relationship or do you expect more of the same or even worse? What's interesting is that, you know, when you look at it from Paris, um, people are very critical of the relationship right now, considering it as as quite a low point. But there's no plan B. There is no idea either in the Macron government or outside to look for alternative partnerships in Europe or sort of coalition of countries that could compensate for um, the lack of French-German uh, unity. So um, there's not much of a scenario of a sort of change in 2023. Now, there is change in Berlin. There are things that will come up uh, also with the, with a strategic document being uh, released in February. There are... I think a much more creative ideas being shared right now about the role of Germany in Europe. And perhaps if there is any change in the Franco-German relationship, that will come from Germany. Now, this being said, um, obviously there are some structural factors that will continue to influence the relationship. There will be a push for industrial projects 
despite all the difficulties that we know. I would expect uh, the French and the Germans to sort of use the next generation fighter, the FGAS, as this kind of flagship uh, initiative where France and Germany can still work together. Um, so that will be something also for PR in 2023. Um, but beyond that, very, very little convergence on all the major issues that we're facing. Interesting, Matan. So, Daniel, Matan actually mentioned this idea of a shift to the east uh, within the EU or kind of a shift of weight toward the east. But there's also the issue of enlargement. Ukraine, Moldova, Bosnia-Herzegovina were given candidate status last year. What do you see in terms of the momentum around enlargement and around Europe's east in general? Yes, if I may revert back just uh, very briefly to this eSport shift as a Central and Eastern European, to be honest, I'm a bit critical with that concept because I think this shift is both temporal and also sectoral in many respects. We see a shift in the agenda setting, and I think Martin is right. It can be traced back to the fact that the German-French axis not only lost credibility as a leadership axis in the EU, but I think we also are not able to see the desire to lead and the offer, the political offer, which uh, this tandem could lead. And this void, this vacuum is now filled, I would say, with, with Central and Eastern European spirit and agenda setting power. But... Uh, we are not able to see any shift in the real roots of power when it comes to the institutions, when it comes to decision-making, and when it comes to real power resources within the European uh, Union. And against that background, I also think that this shift to the East is not sustainable in the long run. There is also a further aspect because why it's not sustainable, the only Central and Eastern European power that is aspiring for a leadership role, Poland, is not necessarily able to lead. And uh, the reason is very simple. Although Poland delivered well uh, on the support of Ukraine, in other aspects of Polish foreign policy, we are able to see that domestic autocratization has its impact on foreign policy. And Poland is a divisive player within the European Union and also not necessarily a predictable player. And I just would like to underline the example of the 18 billion Ukraine aid, which was... uh, in in many respects, a flagship Polish foreign policy project just to be holed up for a couple of days at the end of the year because Poland was not able to give its support to the package deal which was forged in the council. So uh, just coming to the end, where I see much more hope in preserve some of this new agenda-setting power of Central and Eastern Europeans are actually countries like Czechia and Lithuania with very predictable very positive and constructing foreign policies. And I think these two countries were able to demonstrate that even small powers can punch above their weights in global and European foreign policy if they follow these guidelines. And when it comes to the new impetus in EU enlargement, again, I think if we are realistic, then uh, it was a low-hanging fruit to offer candidate status for Ukraine and Moldova and especially an unavoidable political necessity to keep up uh, the moral in Ukraine in their fight against the Russian invasion. And it was more or less also a necessity in the case of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is facing uh, a sort of uh, disintegration and collapse, which is not seen uh, since the middle of the 90s in the region. It doesn't mean it will have any short-term positive outputs or consequences at the enlargement front. And especially, I think we have to underline that it's not an accident that widely in the think tank community, interim solutions 
are now elaborated and sought for, for example, joining the internal market without a full membership in the European Union, which can provide tangible results in midterm, even for countries like Ukraine and then Moldova, without the politically highly sensitive and very poisonous issue of full membership. We saw in 2022, I would say, larger scale agreement on the issue of EU positioning on Ukraine. What do you think is going to happen in 2023? Is it going to be more divisive, especially as costs go up and the war drags on? I mean, what's going to happen? If we take a look on the social reactions and what was expected, especially from the mid-2022, when it comes to the political repercussions of the social costs of supporting Ukraine, then the European societies demonstrated that they are rather resilient And we are not able to see the mass demonstrations or the skyrocketing political support of the radical rights, which was predicted in a couple of countries. Even in Italy, where the radical right was able to conquer the power, they are sticking to a rather pro-Ukrainian political line in the foreign policy affairs. I would like to underline, and again, in agreement with Martin, that I think Europe is not united on the issue of Ukraine. Europe in some form became more resilient, less naive, and in a repeatedly demonstrated way was able to handle the lack of unity within the European Union. And especially with an eye on the latest package agreement in the Council around the 18 billion Ukraine aid. And uh, this was the first time that such uh, troublemakers like Prime Minister Orban faced real resistance in a decade that for me shows that there is hope that in that way Europe will be able to keep that sort of uh, artificial unity uh, in the decision making. And again, the question is how long, obviously, this war will be dragged on. And uh, I think we have to underline that not only Europe is struggling with the issue of sustainability in this case, but also largely Ukraine and first and foremost, Russia is struggling with the question how sustainable this war can be even until mid or late 2023. Rachel, let me get you to weigh in on another key development, and that's the Republican majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. We saw how difficult the battle was for the House leadership role this month. Should we also expect hard right lawmakers in the United States to wield disproportionate control over transatlantic relations and the war in Ukraine, given Republican difficulty in holding together its fractious majority? The good news is I don't think that the problems in the GOP coalition, which, you know, as we've seen, are numerous, and the slim majority is going to be a problem in the short term for Ukraine, right? We saw already the $45 billion aid package that passed the House at the um, end of December. So the war in Ukraine and support for Ukraine remains pretty high in the U.S., and there just aren't enough people even in the GOP to block Democratic support for that. So on that side, I think we can be a little reassured. Now, the bad news is those kind of fights that we saw around the speakership and this Freedom Caucus flexing its muscles and making it very difficult for a very narrow Republican leadership in the House, that's going to continue, and it's going to just mean that Biden has a lot more headaches and maybe can't move as quickly as he might want to and can't focus on other things. So I think it's going to be a spoiler. I think it's going to be a distraction. It's going to reduce reliability of the U.S. as a partner, also in terms of debt, spending, all these problems that we know. But in terms of Ukraine, I wouldn't worry in the near future. 
Martin, let me ask you about this side of the Atlantic. Are there concerns about the Republican control of the U.S. House or even another trade war born of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act? Actually, these are sort of two different issues because the question about the GOP, the Republican majority of the House, is, as Rachel said, perhaps less about ideology and more about simply being concerned that the U.S. Congress may not function in 2023 and may not be able to produce any sort of actual ambitious foreign policy, in which case this is more the stalemate, the inability to vote budget that the Europeans would be concerned about. Now, the more divergent views on trade and on China, they are related to the action of the Biden administration more than to uh, what is happening on the right side of the political spectrum. And there, I think we're facing more structural issues that have to do with the difference. I mean, Europe and and the US face very different economic challenges. And and the energy crisis that we experience right now has highlighted how much the fact that the US is a net exporter of energy changes the whole uh, equation in Europe. And this will stay the same for the years to come. Uh, The question of energy will be central. And in that sense, the way the Europeans will deal with Russia, with China, uh, with the Middle East will be fundamentally different from what can be expected from the Biden administration or any kind of U.S. administration because of this energy difference. And so I think that we will see in 2023 um, the EU, the Commission, uh, with the backing of Paris and Berlin, that may be one point where the two countries agree, implement more sort of protectionist measures, what they would call industrial policy, that will uh, create some tensions uh, with the US. There is no deal to be found, I think, between the US and, and Europe on that side, because they both respond to domestic expectations that uh, the political power should take more of a managing role in the economy. And that, you know, in this slogan of, of the foreign policy for the middle class that was coined by the Biden administration, this is something that the Europeans want to use as well. That nowadays foreign policy, industrial policy should serve the interests of your middle class. This will lead in 2023 to new um EU measures in the digital market, for instance, that will affect, uh, particularly affect US companies and and the the big digital uh, players. That could be uh, the next series of tensions between DC and Brussels. Daniel, what do you think about this? Do you think um, this year is going to be sort of a tougher year for transatlantic unity? And how will that potentially affect support for Ukraine and support for uh, President Zelensky? Yes, uh, thank you. I think 2022 was also far from being a rosy or ideal year for for transatlantic relationship. Um, I I think it was much better than during the Trump administration. (laughs) Maybe I've got rose-colored glasses on, but... (laughs) uh, That's true, and I think it was above the expectation, but but conflict can be sorted uh, out for the price that practically everyone accepted that Germany and France are underperforming in the support of Ukraine. And it was only acceptable because it haven't hampered Ukrainian success on the battlefield. And the cost for the other partners, US, United Kingdom, Central and Eastern European countries, the costs were not unbearable. Obviously, that might change with time when the war is prolonged and also this uh, 
not necessarily right or just distribution of the burdens will be also an increasingly important political issue. When it comes to potential economic conflicts, first, it's again interesting to see that while the underperforming partner in the transatlantic relation are key European partners, they are those who are raising the issue of conflict again in the transatlantic relationship. And it is understandable because, as Martin already underlined, practically Europe's industrial base and industrial capacity is under a twofold siege. It's the lack of access to energy resources, which are affordable for European uh, companies and European states, and also the growing competition from different global players, but first and foremost, the United States, uh, the economy of which is not suffering under this pressure of energy prices. And obviously, Europe has only one option, escaping forward in building out increased renewable uh, energy resources and greening its economy. Meanwhile, it also should keep its energy intense industrial base. And obviously, these dual goals are hard to achieve if even key transatlantic players are putting pressure on Europe. But whether this economic conflict can have negative repercussions on the support to Ukraine, to be honest, I'm rather skeptical. Political undecidedness and the wrong political perceptions in key European capitals can undermine military and financial support to Ukraine, but I don't think that transatlantic economic competition can. You may have already given me, uh, Daniel, a little bit of a bridge to the next question, which is you mentioned undecidedness, strategic undecidedness, and what we haven't talked about yet is Russia. What does 2023 look like in terms of EU-Russian relations. I will specifically ask you, Daniel, to talk about Viktor Orban in this case. Um, what are Hungary's relations towards Russia going to look like in 2023? And then Matin, also to you. Uh, thank you. I will try to keep it uh, <laughs> concise and start uh, with, I think, the potentially least influential player in that regard, which is Prime Minister Orban and Hungary. And I think Prime Minister Orban is practically on a strategic crossway. It's obvious that his previous strategy, which was based on geopolitical disloyalty and exerting pressure and leverage over official partners and allies through this uh, multivectoral foreign policy and, uh, and geopolitical disloyalty, is in crisis. And he has practically now three months until the end of March, when the so-called 27 super milestones, which are the criteria to get access to EU funding for the Hungarian uh, government, has to be fulfilled until he has to hammer out a new strategy. And whether he will be able to do so is, I think, the big elephant in the room. Because Hungary's domestic autocratization over the past decade went hand in hand with this multivectoral foreign policy. And it's very difficult to revert back one without reverting back the other. Although he obviously has the option to build uh, an autocracy on the Polish model, which trades geopolitical loyalty for political non-intervention and trades it very successful in the transatlantic relations, even if less successful at the stage of European politics. But whether Orban is ready and able to make that U-turn, I think it will open or will remain open until early April. So early April, we're watching in terms of Hungary and Russia. What about you, Amata? Are you watching anything particular with EU-Russia relations? What are you expecting or hoping for? 
Well, in fact, actually, in terms of EU-Russia, perhaps less changes or less things to look at. And I'm more interested in what happens in the relation between Russia and the rest of the world, uh, which is, again, looking at it from Paris, one of the big topics since the beginning of the war is there a sort of de-Westernization of a series of countries around the globe um, in the context of the war. So what will be really the kind of factors to look at is whether the China-Russia relationship gets to the next stage. I mean, she and Putin had a talk and uh, mentioned the fact that they wanted to talk about strategic issues more substantially in 2023. Uh, India will have the presidency of the G20, and we don't know exactly uh, how Modi will sort of navigate the situation vis-a-vis Russia during that year. Uh, We heard from the new Israeli government that there could be sort of a change also in the Israeli uh, position on the war. Um, We know that the new Brazilian president Lula is closer to, um, I think, uh, sort of a Russian uh, a narrative of the war than the previous uh, Brazilian government. So a lot of sort of pieces that are moving around the world that will actually affect the conflict in many ways and will force also Europeans to sort of take a side uh, vis-a-vis these other countries. So um, giving you one example, we know that France has been working very closely with the US to influence the India position because we have this strategic partnership with India. If in 2023 we see that Prime Minister Modi tends to go against the French or the European uh, support to Ukraine, this could create a major, major tension in the region and in the Indo-Pacific. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about our transatlantic forecast for 2023. Stay tuned to Transatlantic Takeaway. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. This is Abby, presenter and co-creator of Berlin Briefing. Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. We curate local top stories and present them in an 8 to 10 minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway, where we are forecasting transatlantic political trends in the new year. I'm Soraya Serhati Nelson of Common Ground Berlin. And I'm Rachel Tausenfreund of the German Marshall Fund. We're joined in the studio by GMF Senior Fellow and Senior Program Officer Daniel Hegedush and via Zoom by the Director of GMF's Paris office, Martin Quincey. Let's start this half with some of the forecasts, other forecasts that are on your mind. Daniel, what are you thinking about or watching for 2023? It's predetermined, but I will be <laughs> I will be mainly watching rule of law and democracy related developments within the European uh, Union. 
and how they play out on the integrity and resilience uh, of the integration and also the European Union security and its relationship with the United States. From this perspective, for me, one of the biggest highlights uh, of the first half of the year will be the second summit for democracy. Because once again, it will give us an impression how the United States is perceiving autocratization within the Western alliance system and how it handles autocratic or autocratizing partners within the European Union. I think last time the selective US approach was rather successful. And I think this time the EU has to stand up to the challenge, how it can avoid a potential Hungarian veto and how it can speak with one voice through EU institutions at the Summit for Democracy. Interesting. Uh, Mata, what about you? You mentioned before the break looking at India and some global trends. What else are you focused on or what do you think is interesting for 2023? In Europe, I'll look at a couple of elections that actually will change a few things for the European political landscape. So we have in March and April elections in Estonia and in Finland. Probably not a big change in terms of this country's policy vis-a-vis Russia or Finland accession to NATO. But it will matter because, um, well, in both cases, it's going to be interesting to look at what the the far right party will get as a result and whether even they might join a sort of coalition in one case. Um, Then later on this year, the elections that are extremely important in Poland in October, November, and then in Spain at the very end of the year. But perhaps for the alliance, the most consequential one is in June, is in Turkey, where uh, President Erdogan is um, sort of actually at risk of perhaps losing power would uh, truly change fundamentally the political balance, I think, within the alliance. Uh, Also, a lot of the strategic issues that we're dealing with uh, in terms of Turkish uh, relationship to Greece, in terms of the Kurdish issue in in some uh, European countries, that will have implications for the whole of Europe and I would say for the US as well. All the elections sort of respond to specific domestic political issues, but there is an overall economic crisis uh, element to them. And that will be where I think uh, perhaps we will see some of the consequences of the Ukraine war and of COVID still um, that will have on the politics of, uh, of Europe and NATO. We talked about the war in Ukraine before the break, and I wanted to follow up on that. Daniel, any thoughts on what impact the continuing Russian war in Ukraine and the energy crisis will have on the Green Deal goals here in Europe? What we could be able to observe until now was that the war practically accelerated the Green Deal. It accelerated in a very much extense investments into renewable energies on the whole European continent. And as I mentioned, this is practically the only way Europe can escape forward and can try to somehow preserve its industrial base in the global economic competition. Outside uh, of the renewable energy component, what could it mean, obviously, for the other components of, of the Green Deal? There I am a bit more skeptical because all of uh, other potential dimensions which may put extra social cost or extra social burden on European electorates is not necessarily very timely or would be very true to proceed with that. Martin, do you foresee negotiations happening between Ukraine and Russia this year? 
I don't think that we are at the point where any of the two sides thinks that it is in their uh, interest to start the negotiation. I mean, we know that the Russians believe that they should actually uh, get uh, more territory and that there is a new mobilization that is supposed to help a new momentum on the front. And for Ukraine, obviously, with the cost of the war and the fact that the counteroffensive this fall turned out so successful, there is no chance to say, let's stop the fight and let's talk. So as long as long as both sides believe that is in their interest to um, continue the war, I don't see any hope for a negotiation. Now, as we know, um, a lot of the projections turn out to be wrong since February, and we may face a collapse of one military side um, much sooner than expected, and something that would change completely the situation on the front. Uh, perhaps actually the situation on the Russian military side is even worse than what is being portrayed, and things can change in weeks. So that will determine whether there are peace talks, but right now, uh, very little uh, expectation. But do you expect pressure from the West or from China on the parties to engage in talks? I mean, a lot of the Ukrainian success can be traced back to the funding and the equipment and support from whether it's the United States, largely the United States, but also the EU. I mean, at some point there is going to be domestic pressure in these various locales to kind of bring this to an end. No? Well, it goes back to the question of sustainability that uh, Daniel mentioned before. What I think could happen is that another crisis takes place, something that is completely uh, a blind spot uh, right now, another political or economic crisis that will force European leaders or the US administration to say, well, we have a new priority. And therefore, our um, support to Ukraine has to be adapted to this new priority, something major, I don't know, COVID style. Except for this, I don't think that uh, European leaders or, in fact, Joe Biden himself really have the leverage to ask Zelensky to sort of open talks uh, with Vladimir Putin. This is a fight uh, that has caused so much to the Ukrainian people that everybody, I think, understands that this is not for France, Germany, or the US to decide when this is supposed to end. On the China issue, I don't think the same. What I hear from China experts is that we shouldn't overestimate the leverage that Beijing has over Vladimir Putin's decisions. And, and despite the fact that obviously there is a growing dependency of Russia over, over China, this is not something that will allow uh, the Chinese leader, if they want to, to ask uh, Moscow to change their Ukraine policy. Shifting gears a little bit back to what you uh, mentioned just briefly before, Matan, from the war to sort of the other impacts, uh, which are economic, and economics are also uh, politics, as you mentioned a bit in your answer earlier. So what about... 2023 in the economic picture. So 2022 was marked by high inflation, stock markets collapsing. What is your expectation, Daniel, in terms of the 2023 economy and also its impact on the EU? Um, as not being an economist, I think my expectations <laughs> will rather scratch the surface. But um, we have to expect prolonged inflation and uh, recurring supply chain crisis. Already since 2021, we see that there are recurring uh, supply crises of scarce items. And 
Even in 2022, we saw that the number of that items increased, made it be chips, made it be vital ingredients to even keep a high-tech industry running, made it be very basic food to avoid a global food crisis. And having a prolonged war, we will see that even in more and more places can we experience big breakdown of the global supply chains. But if you allow me just to return with one tote on Martin's latest question regarding to the peace talks or peace negotiations, if that's foresight, I think we also have to consider scenarios which are not really plausible, but could have been logical. And that would be that uh, initiating peace talks could be a tactical move and the strategic interest of Russia, with which President Putin could potentially also kill two birds with one stone. One, drive a wedge within the Western alliance system, because I think it would be very difficult to predict how European elites in a couple of member states, France, Germany, Italy, other ones, would react on such an initiative if it's uh, long enough and credible enough And second, if we consider that Russia is also on the verge of capabilities to continue with the fighting, Russian stocks are also running low. Potentially, this would be the tool how President Putin could win time to build up the capabilities again to continue with this war. And if we take a look on the Russian diplomatic track record since 2014 in the Donbas, the negotiation of the different Minsk agreements, or if we just consider the previous Hansen force during the negotiations with Turkey, how, for example, the grain can be shipped out from the Black Sea, then we see that it's part of the Russian diplomatic toolkit. Russia can play on just winning time and initiating peace talks would be, I think, the most obvious way how they could achieve all of these goals, what I mentioned. So I'm not saying that it's highly predictable because obviously it should be explained for the Russian domestic uh, audience while Putin is changing gears. But I think we can expect similar Russian diplomatic moves in 2023. Well, let's wrap up our conversation with another crisis that is looming further to the east, and that is Iran. Predictions are that Iran will soon have enough fissile material to produce a nuclear weapon if it doesn't have one already. Martin, what impact will that development have on Iranian relations with the EU um, and the U.S. by extension? And should we expect some sort of nuclear deal? Yeah, so that's exactly what I meant when I said that issue for 2023 is when another crisis arises and then uh, Western diplomats and leaders have to to think about what kind of political bandwidth they have to invest on this crisis. So if there is indeed an escalation with Iran and the nuclear program reaches another stage, the question is whether the Biden administration, which is already sort of annoyed at the fact that the war in Ukraine prevents them from truly turning to China, whether they will say, well, look, this is an important issue. This is an issue that relates to nuclear proliferation and stability in the region, but this may not be the priority and should not affect our, our vital interests right now. Same can be said for Europeans. I would expect, obviously, France and perhaps the UK as nuclear powers to have a specific and special involvement in this matter. But beyond that, um, th- there is a risk that simply European powers will say, we don't 
don't have the space right now to deal with this. So um, this could turn to an issue that will be dealt with by the regional powers. Saudi Arabia recently said that if Iran reaches uh, the threshold, all bets are off, uh, meaning that, yeah, we could face a, a situation of nuclear proliferation uh, with other powers, such as Saudi Arabia, trying to get the nukes. Um, obviously, Israel with the new government will have to be watched. Um, but beyond that, I, I I don't think that in the current context, European and, and American leaders will have a chance to truly start a new negotiation or a, an ambitious project with Iran. This is something that is too complex to be dealt with when there are no other issues at the same time, and even more so now with the war in Ukraine. Daniel, I've seen you nodding while Martin is talking. Do you agree or any thoughts about whether there's a potential for a nuclear deal or pressure to do one? Uh, I largely agree. I don't think that the Iranian regime would be really interested in a deal if they are really close to have the critical amount of fissile material. However, if I can be rather provocative. Of course. Then we have to consider that Iran as a nuclear power is not necessarily something detrimental on the stability of the Middle East. Of course. Oh, that is provocative. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I am not I am not I am not arguing that uh, this is the scenario how it will play out but I think this is a realistic scenario. The most realistic scenario is to have developments very similar to North Korea. That of course there will be a nuclear <laughs> uh, competition and proliferation so it will be very difficult to without Saudi Arabia from acquiring uh, nuclear strike capabilities and they already have the delivery systems so they only need the warheads. It's a wild card. We don't know how Israel will react. Former Prime Minister Bennett Naftali just last summer also haven't excluded the opportunity of a military preemptive strike, although I think it's rather unlikely. But it's a matter of fact that since the end of the Second World War, there was only one major military confrontation against a nuclear power, and that was in 1973, the Yom Kippur War against Israel. Having nuclear capabilities would offer the opportunity for the Tehran regime that they shouldn't necessarily rely on supporting Shia insurgencies uh, in the neighboring Sunni countries to get their regional security. And of course, there's also an opposing scenario, which means that with having nuclear weapons, they will be emboldened to support Shia insurgencies in the neighboring countries. But in that regard, I think their perception and their strategy can be influenced through negotiations, through selective economic offers. The question is whether it's really in the strategic interest of Western countries to reward uh, a freshly nuclearized Iran with economic benefits just to withhold Iranian or to cut down Iranian uh, interventions in the neighboring countries. It's obviously not. But from a security perspective, focusing on cutting down Iranian influences in the neighboring countries instead of of focusing on the Iranian nuclear program offers much more perspective and much more potential success for Western partners than in the previous decade. Well, we're out of time and we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks to Martin Conseil, director of GMF's Paris office, who joined us via Zoom. And thank you to GMF senior fellow and senior program officer, Daniel Hegedush. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. And I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. 
Transatlantic Takeaway is a joint production by the German Marshall Fund and Common Ground Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. In addition to Transatlantic Takeaway, all Common Ground Berlin and GMF's Out of Order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check our respective podcasts' websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org. 